welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is interesting because we tackle a trial, the prospect trial that was presented at the plenary session of the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting 2023. I asked Dr. Salma Jabbour, Professor and Vice Chair of Radiation Oncology at the Rutgers Cancer Institute, to join me on today's podcast to discuss the prospect trial. Along the way, though, I'm going to ask Dr. Jabbour about her interest in radiation oncology, about some of the changes in the field of radiation oncology, and about the controversial um, New York Times article that came actually after the trial results were published uh, describing radiotherapy as brutal. And I'm going to challenge Dr. Jabour about this description. So let's see how it all lays out. And before I air the episode I take with Dr. Jabour, I'd like to plug the show and ask you to rate it, subscribe to it, and watch all of these interviews on my YouTube channel. Also, you can visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. If you are an avid subscriber and a listener, don't hesitate to hit me up and ask me for the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. I will gladly send that to you. I have gray and black at present. Okay, folks, without further ado, Dr. Salma Jabbour on Healthcare Unfiltered. Salma, welcome to the show. And for those people who probably uh, don't know a little bit about us, we both happen to be from our home country in Syria. So this is probably an unprecedented Syrian type of podcast. We can literally talk it in a different language, but we're going to choose English. Sounds good to me, Shadi. Thank you so much for having me here today. And I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you on this really special platform. So let's start talking about you. I'm fascinated by your career, by your journey. And I always feel that there's a lot to the story beyond just the scientist. Uh, Tell me, how did you end up where you are right now? Take us through your journey. Oh, goodness. Uh, So thank you for letting me talk about myself. Um, I guess I can focus mostly on radiation oncology and how I chose this specialty of course, I was. Uh, I could start with how I wanted to become a doctor, too. I, I would say that my biggest memory of helping people was actually as a Girl Scout. Um, I was about eight, and I remember making a little craft for a neighbor who was an older neighbor. And um, their reaction once I provided them with this kind gift uh, was really astonishing to me. And I was just taken aback by how grateful they were. And that was one of my first memories of helping somebody or doing something nice for someone that sort of stuck with me. And um, later on, I really love science. I loved um, the idea of helping people. And this led me to medicine. So later on in medical school, I had kind of a difficult experience. in my first year there, I had a dear friend of mine whose father Uh, had been suddenly diagnosed with a high-grade aggressive lymphoma. And in the span of about six weeks in my very first part of medical school, he passed away in kind of a prestigious institution. And this left me kind of confused and 
feeling helpless and obviously very saddened about this gentleman who I had cared deeply about. He was someone who had introduced me to rock and roll music and uh, riding with the convertible, convertible down and just was very fun and, and had some indelible memories in my childhood. And this also set the stage for me thinking about oncology. And um, with this experience, I set out on my third and fourth years. And frankly, I was really interested in everything. I appreciated the the rationale and kind of the logic of the internist. I loved uh, the connection, the emotional connection that the psychiatrist had with the patients. I cherished uh, the, the precision and the anatomy knowledge that the surgeon had. And when I finally rotated in oncology, I would say that although I looked at medical oncology, I was always a bit saddened by the chemotherapy and sort of back in that day, maybe about 25 years ago, the limited chemotherapy options. And when I came to look at radiation oncology, it seemed to combine the best of all the worlds, what the internist could do, what the psychiatrist could do, what the surgeon could do, all these really special aspects of anatomy and patient care, but also really made an immediate difference for the patient, whether it came down to palliating somebody for bleeding or pain, cord compression, uh, or whether curing a patient, this was something radiation had an immediate effect on. And I was really taken aback by that. And my mentors in the specialty in medical school and in my rotations were really these amazing teachers who also left this mark on me in terms of educating me as a student, but also the patients and how the treatment would go. And they were so knowledgeable about the tumor and the side effects. And it just was really impressive to see them spend a lot of time with the patient and the caring that they provided. And I think that that left a big mark on me and led me to my career in radiation oncology. Where did you do your residency at radiation oncology? So I did my residency at Hopkins. Um, so I was in Baltimore for a total of nine years for medical school and residency. And I um, joined the faculty at U then uh, UMDNJ and now Rutgers. Um, 17 years ago, we helped to start a brand new radiation oncology department, uh, which as you know, is not a common thing to do for most radiation oncologists. We usually, most radiation oncologists walk into a well-established academic department, especially if they're going into academics or even a private practice. This was a new department. So we had a lot of work to do in terms of establishing practices, in terms of um, educating our colleagues about radiation. And I would say it was probably a very unique experience that I was really lucky to have in hindsight, but at times was difficult in the early days. Um, things that I'd observed in residency that were so easy to persuade colleagues of were often difficult to enact and took a lot of education uh, for at times in, in our um, practice. But eventually they came around and this also gave me the platform to try new things and to initiate things I'd seen as a medical student or resident. Um, I worked with my interventional interventional radiology colleagues to develop a yttrium 90 program in 2007. Uh, we were the first in the state of New Jersey to do that. And that was actually thanks to my experience at the University of Maryland as a medical student where I saw my mentors uh, do that therapy and collaborate with their interventional radi radiologists to uh, complete these treatments for patients. So I was really lucky to kind of have an open platform. Yeah. 
and you're currently a professor. I am professor and vice chair of clinical research and faculty development. So it's a, a really fun job. I kind of get to address all my passions. I can still take care of patients. I can ask important questions about how to improve care for patients. And I just love, um, love what I do. You know, so in medical oncology, in academic practices, there's this, uh, you know, I mean, it, it appears now that it's like super subspecialization of things. Um, you know, I joke sometimes with my colleagues who are seeing patients, are you only seeing patients who have cancer of the right kidney upper pole? And that's it. Um, because we've, we've gotten too much into subspecialty. Is that the same in radiation oncology where you will only see certain tumors, and is that good or bad for patients? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, I think that um, in radi most radiation oncologists do have an, a subspecialty, especially in academia. Uh, we specialize usually in one or two disease sites, but we're expected to be general radiation oncologists as well because most of us have uh, to take call or see inpatients as part of our uh, practice. And so we, I still treat brain metastases and cord compressions and bleeding, things that are tumors that are bleeding or painful. And so for us, uh, we have to function occasionally as generalists. And, and that's always a, an exciting um, thing to do. I, I still love every aspect of it. And for me, I specifically otherwise specialize in thoracic radiation oncology and GI radiation oncology. But uh, when I have difficult cases, I have the fortune to be able to work with my colleagues and to uh, to ask them questions if I don't know the answer uh, for another case. There, there's so much going on in radiation oncology in terms of progress and advances. I think, obviously, this is not going to be the entire topic of this podcast. Um, we won't really have time for all of this. But when you think how things evolved over the past two decades, what's where do you see the field of radiation oncology going? I mean, you're seeing these advances, you know, in medical oncology, what we're seeing more is, I think, despite the fact sometimes it gets a bad notion, I do think precision oncology is really the future for medical oncology. Is that the same for radiation or is it really more the technology piece of things or like what, what how... What, what are you seeing happening in terms of advances, maybe top three advances in the next few years? Well, I'd like to think that we can follow in the footsteps of our great medical oncology colleagues and incorporate more precision radiation oncology, but we are still a bit off from that right now. I do think the future does hold for us uh, something similar where we can guide our patients through therapy, perhaps with a variety of doses or um, a special paradigm based on their genomic features, the genomic features of their tumor. Um, but right now we're not there. So I, I do have that hope for us in the, in the coming years. Uh, the second thing I would say that's important for us as radiation oncologists is to continue to be a definitive therapy uh, for a variety of tumors. And I think one thing we'll talk about today is rectal cancer. And rectal cancer, one way that radiation has become more important is that it can often serve as a definitive therapy for patients who have a strong response to the treatment and um, have their tumors disappear. They can potentially avoid surgery. Uh, that's an, 
a space where radiation therapy may have a role is to become more of a definitive rather than an adjuvant therapy for patients. And I do think the third area is technological. And the technological advances can come in kind of two formats. One is to continue our work as radiation oncologists of decreasing therapy toxicities. And when we decrease toxicities, obviously we can potentially increase the therapeutic ratio, but there's also the benefit of new technological advances that allow us to become a safer and more effective definitive therapy. Uh, things like potentially MRI guided therapies, uh, improvements in proton therapy. Um, and we also have the space of radiopharmaceuticals that I think is really exciting. And that potentially right now allows for strong, uh, strong palliative options for patients, but still um, this is a really exciting and burgeoning area of um, the use of radiation. So I think we have a lot to do in our specialty and I think we have a lot of options to help patients and make a difference in their long-term outcomes. I have to tell you, proton therapies get a lot of, you know, it's, it's a kind of sensitive topic uh, about proton therapy. And I've had uh, Ralph Waxenbaum on my podcast previously, who, you know, Ralph is unfiltered. So, you know, he goes all in and it was a very entertaining podcast to tape. Do you see, I mean, what's happening there? Are you guys doing really some definitive therapies so we really know that there's an actual benefit broadly uh, in certain tumors. I mean, I, as a medical oncologist, I, I kind of feel we're not really sure outside of pediatric population whether proton really has that much utility because of cost and everything like that. Um, is there a position from radiation oncologists, you know, how, how this is going to play out? Well, we have data across multiple tumor types that I, I think is quite strong that in the very least, proton therapy can decrease toxicity. Uh, we have data from Stephen Lynn about uh, total toxicity burden for esophageal cancer and the use of proton versus photon therapy, and that really kind of all toxicities were as a whole reduced with the use of proton for esophageal cancer. We see similar effects in hepatocellular carcinoma, for example, where we can apply proton to decrease radiation-induced liver disease. Um, potentially similar, similar kind of trends have been seen in lung cancer treatment as well. Um, so I think there's a role, and I think that as the systemic therapy has um, improved and provides patients with improved outcomes in and of itself, um, providing patients with better toxicity profiles using radiation, potentially better survivals, as a result of less toxicity or in addition to less toxicity, that this can really make a difference for patients. And on the topic of Ralph Flexibom, I think one other area to he talk be, about- he, he better be listening to this he one. He better be listening, um, is just oligometastatic disease. And I think that's an area where we have a greater role as the systemic therapies obviously become yeah. um, more effective. And how many, how many tumors do we treat? How many tumors can we treat safely? And- and who are we making a difference for? So identifying those groups of patients. And so that kind of falls into perhaps um, a mixture of the three topics I highlighted before. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it's, I have to tell you, uh, Selma, when I was doing my residency, you know, I mean, I did my medical school in Syria, not a lot of exposure to innovative things, as, as you could imagine. But when I was doing my residency, I was amazed 
as to the important role the physicists have in radiation oncology. I really did not really know how integral they are, and they're so important, obviously, in what they do. Tell us about this. I mean, for listeners who don't really understand the dynamics of how the interplay, you know, who is involved in all of this planning and decision-making, maybe just a few minutes to highlight the, you know, what actually goes on to decide um, where you're going to deliver the beams. Yeah, exactly. This radiation oncology is a complex specialty with a really strong team approach. I mean, radiation oncologists are... Um, are taking care of the patients, obviously, day-to-day with the nursing staff, with our clinical staff, uh, but behind the scenes in order to prepare the radiation therapy and in order to make sure the radiation therapy is safe and accurate, we rely heavily on our physics team. And um, our physis- our medical physicists are highly, a highly trained group of individuals who actually do medical physics residencies um, after um, either a PhD or a master's in physics, and uh, they have special expertise in understanding um, radiation design, planning, toxicities, um, the machines themselves. Uh, these exceptional physicists are able to often uh, fix machines. Uh, they can really troubleshoot just the day-to-day problems in the clinic, but most of all, they're there to make sure our patients are safe. Our physicists are so good. Sometimes they'll email me and say, Dr. Jabor, did you think about this when you reviewed this plan? I mean, they're looking at the the dose volume histogram. They're assessing it for safety. Did you check this dose? And sometimes um, they're really just um, going out of their way to um, to make sure everything is 100% safe for the patient. And 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 they're really on our team to um, to get uh, the patient the best treatment. Um, there's another group of um, of individuals who are also kind of considered to be on the physics team, and those are the dosimetrists. And the dosimetrists are also a highly trained group of individuals who work with us to actually design the radiation beams, so to speak. Um, so they are experts at um, using our computer software to come up with a plan after the radiation oncologist has delineated where the radiation needs to be delivered. And uh, we spend a lot of time doing that. Um, we are really trying to get the radiation beams into a certain area while protecting nearby uh, organs or nearby areas that don't need to receive the radiation. And it's always a balancing act. And we work closely with our dosimetrists to make sure that those plans are optimized for the patients. And that takes a lot of judgment, both mm-hmm. from the physician and the dosimetrist uh, to ultimately get kind of the optimal plan. And last of all, we can't forget our radiation therapists who are actually the technologists behind the machines day in and day out, uh, many hours per day, who are ensuring that radiation is properly aligned at the first level, obviously with the physician double-checking everything. But they're really out there um, being our eyes and ears and getting their hands on the patients to get them properly treated. So we have a lot of complexity in our department and we rely heavily on each other to get the job done for the patient and make sure that the patient's really well taken care of. And I appreciate the fact that you said one of the important things that advances is, you know, how you reduce toxicities. And one of the ways to reduce toxicities is just to not give radiation therapy. Someone just like, forget the whole damn thing. I mean, you know, I mean, we're, we are trying to get you a business in medical oncology in the lymphoma world. And I think we have successfully probably done a lot of that <laughs> in lymphoma at least. But uh, 
um, you know, there's uh, always, I feel, um, there's uh, at least in the lymphoma world, there's always a heavy debate uh, about the use of radiation therapy. But radiation therapy was front and center at this ASCO meeting that we just finished a few weeks ago um, uh, at the plenary session with a trial that was uh, labeled as the prospect trial. Um, and obviously the trial was really attempting to omit radiotherapy altogether in some patients with rectal cancer. Maybe, maybe it's worth starting by, I guess, explaining to, uh, to listeners, you know, um, what do we normally do for rectal cancer patients? Because these are patients that the goal remains to cure. I mean, our goal is to cure these patients in the non-metastatic setting, even in locally advanced disease, where the disease is locally advanced, there's an opportunity to cure. So what's, what, what do you, you know, what, what is normally done for these patients? Because this might be a good segue as to why the prospect trial was actually designed. Yeah, rectal cancer is a fun um, disease to talk about because it really has a history to it. And I love thinking about the history of this disease because, as you know, um, we work so closely with our medical oncologists and surgical oncologists to improve care. And that care is a stepwise improvement that we can harness over the years for the patient. And in, in rectal cancer, we've made these stepwise improvements over decades. And in the earliest of years, um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the standard of care was really to take the patient straight to surgery, uh, take out the tumor, and offer postoperative adjuvant therapy, which came in the form of either chemo or radiation or chemo and radiation. And in the earliest studies, we found that the use of chemotherapy obviously decreased distant recurrences, while radiation decreased local recurrences. And then when we combined them, they had the benefit of both worlds, uh, leading to postoperative chemoradiation as the standard of care up till probably the early 2000s, at least in the U.S. Um, at the same time in Europe, um, there was um, an interest in giving preoperative short course radiation, which in the early studies had shown there was actually survival benefit to give a short course of one week of radiation before surgery and then taking the patients to surgery compared to surgery alone. And, um, and that also spiked a lot of interest, at least in the U.S. And then finally, one of the earlier advancements was um, the use of total mesorectal excision. And this type of surgery um, allowed for removal of the mesorectal fascia on block with the tumor and lymph nodes. And this really clean dissection um, improved local recurrence rates. So even in some of the earliest studies, uh, we had to prove whether or not radiation was helpful in the setting of good total mesorectal excision. And in fact, uh, the addition of radiation therapy to TME surgery continued to decle decrease local recurrence. Now into the early 2000s, we had the German rectal um, cancer study performed, which looked at the preoperative uh, chemoradiation approach versus a postoperative chemoradiation approach after TME surgery. And although there were no differences in the outcomes as far as distant disease, there was a halving of local recurrence and a decrease in toxicity with the use of preoperative chemoradiation. And uh, probably very most importantly, there was, uh, or very importantly, there was the improvement in, improvement in sphincter-preserving surgery. So um, patients who were thought to need an APR uh, 
about 40% of patients were thought to need an abdominal perineal resection, leaving patients with permanent colostomy. And then with the use of preoperative chemoradiation therapy, that number who ultimately needed a permanent colostomy went down to about 20%. So we were able to spare patients a permanent colostomy uh, in you know, from 40 to 20%. So that was quite an improvement. And I think that really set the stage for this question of using preoperative chemoradiation therapy more uh, more often. You know, it's, um, it's amazing what you mentioned, yep. the stepwise fashion. It's really, frankly, very nice how you articulated the progress because it takes a lot of studies and clinical trials and perseverance to get where we are. So you know, it took until the 2000s until we started doing preoperative chemoradiotherapy. Correct. Yes, as a routine, at least in the U.S. and and abroad, and and then there were a lot of iterations of a variety of studies. But I would say that one thing that stu- stood out to me as I watched the data sort of unfold was this question of what to do with the chemotherapy. Now we were giving chemoradiation therapy preoperatively, and oftentimes, at least at our own institution, we were noticing patients weren't always getting the postoperative chemotherapy that they required, and that there were. Um, that patients were often still recuperating from surgery, that then chemotherapy wasn't being delivered in a timely fashion. And and I think that some of these uh, situations are actually difficult for the patient, as well as some early studies looking at chemotherapy in the preoperative setting uh, led to us um, considering chemotherapy preoperatively. And um, the last five to 10 years has really focused a lot on the question of what to do preoperatively and how best to do it. And who can benefit most from these um, from these therapies? And what sequences can we avoid surgery? Can we do more limited surgery? Uh, what's going to get get the patient the best outcome? And I that's where say, we are <laughs> these yeah, days. <laughs> and I have to say, I think more is less in terms of the type of trials um, is really important because ultimately, um, you know, if you're able to get the same results with fewer toxicities, is great. So this led to this trial that got so much attention. Congratulations, you made to the New York Times, it looks like. uh, And there's a lot of controversy about this, which we'll talk about. But before we get there, let's talk about this prospect trial that made it to the plenary session and kind of simplify it to listeners who may not be radiation oncologists. So the PROSPECT trial was a study that was launched in 2012. This was a study being conducted through the NCTN Alliance Group. And this study sought to build upon uh, previous data, a pilot study that had been conducted at Memorial Sloan Kettering, looking at a certain subgroup of rectal cancer patients who were treated with chemotherapy alone preoperatively. And the rationale for this was potentially to decrease toxicity. And in this pilot study that had been performed at Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, the treatment was very successful. The patients had a very low rate of recurrences in the pelvis, um, and they tolerated the therapy well and could be cured with it. So this led to the concept of the PROSPECT trial, and this um, set the stage for this over 1,100 patient randomized phase three clinical trial. So what were they randomized to? What were the two arms? So the two arms were, first of all, patients could get full FOX chemotherapy for six cycles. And as long as the patients had a response of 20% or more, they were good to go if and went on to receive um, surgery. Without radiation. Without radiation. They get full FOX 
And how do you measure that 20%? Like just like radiographically or do you do like a scope again? Like Yes, by in, in the uh, protocol and the article, they describe using proctoscopy okay. or some sort of scope procedure to evaluate the tumor size. Uh, so if these patients were successful with a good response to their chemotherapy, they went on to receive their low anterior resection. These patients were all patients with tumors who were deemed not to need an abdominal perineal resection. They were uh, in the mid-rectum mid and um, and really had more favorable features, either T2 uh, node positive, T3 node negative, or T3 node positive with four or fewer lymph with uh, fewer than four lymph nodes. And um, these patients were randomized to the other arm, which was chemotherapy and radiation therapy alone, our standard chemo radiation for five and a half weeks, uh, with concurrent capecitabine or five FU. And um, and this this was the basis of the trial. The primary endpoint being disease free survival. So the goal was to to see if you in responding patients to chemotherapy, is it safe to omit radiation? It looks like correct. So. Okay. So what did they find out? So basically, the study was really revealing. I, the this, the disease-free survival rates, which were the primary endpoints, were no different. This was a non-inferiority trial, so um, so chemotherapy was non-inferior to radiation chemoradiation therapy, and the results were very impressive across the board. Now, remember, these are kind of a more favorable group of patients, mid-rectum, not low-lying tumors, um, kind of more limited uh, nodal burden um, generally probably smaller tumors as a result of the lower lymph node burden. So um, so a few details about this um, in terms of the inclusion criteria, the patients who had T4 tumors or four or more pelvic lymph nodes or tumors within three millimeters of the radial margin were not eligible. Um, in total, there was um, 1,128 patients that were randomized, so it was a very big study. And I felt that in reviewing the patient characteristics, um, they were very comparable, but I did think as a radiation oncologist, there was a couple of things that were less in favor of the radiation group. Um, although there were no p-values provided, um, the T3 node positive group, there was about 7% more patients in that group that were in the chemo RT um, arm and in the T2, N0, and um, T2 node positive, there were slightly more in the chemo alone group. Um, so I, I did wonder a little bit about that. Um, but on the other hand, um, one of the favorable outcomes um, was that the complete response rates were very comparable between the two arms, um, around 24% for both groups. So that was a really favorable outcome and showed us that we have a great chance to really uh, make that tumor disappear with either the full FOX or chemo radiation. So, so the you know the ultimate output was that the disease-free survival was comparable, which means that if you give full FOX and you get more than twenty percent response, you can avoid radiation therapy. Um, two questions: Number one, is disease-free survival appropriate as an endpoint? And number two, how about toxicities? Were toxicities actually? less because in my mind i'm thinking you know infolfax could cause a lot of neuropathy that's toxicity obviously chemo rt could cause the other type of toxicities in terms of diarrhea and things like that so 
Are you trading one toxicity with another? So what about toxicities between both arms? And do you think that disease-free survival is an appropriate endpoint? I do think we use disease-free survival commonly in most phase three randomized studies because it's a, a slightly shorter endpoint than overall survival. And I think it's quite reasonable. Here, the disease-free survival was 80.8% in the full FOX group and 78.6% in the chemo RT group. And just to clarify, the complete response rates were 21.9% with chemo and 24.3% with chemo radiation. And only about 2% of patients ultimately required an abdominal perineal resection. Insofar as the toxicities, this was a really big point um, as far as patient decision-making. I, I think that when it comes down to having two treatments that can perform very similarly in terms of their long-term outcomes, looking at the toxicity profile is really where uh, the, we can help the patient to make a decision about their treatment. And in fact, um, Patients who were in the chemo alone arm had a much higher rate of toxicities. Um, we saw that patients um, in the full FOX group had rates of grade three or higher toxicity that were 41% versus 22.8% with chemo radiation. And this is nearly a, a doubling. And you're right, uh, neuropathy was quite more frequent in the full FOX group um, being at a rate of, I think, over 80% uh, versus the chemo radiation group. Whereas in the chemo radiation group, there was more diarrhea and um, and this was probably the more common effect there. Um, so, so we really saw a very big difference in the long-term, uh, short-term uh, toxicities, both preoperatively and postoperatively in, in these groups. Um, and, there uh, was. You know, we'll have to do the longer follow-up to see what happens later on. Yes, um, there was a companion article in addition to the New England Journal article, uh, which really reported clinician-reported outcomes and toxicities. Um, in the jur Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, companion article that looked at patient-reported toxicities, um, there were significantly lower rates of diarrhea and overall better bowel function with full FOX, while the toxicities for the chemotherapy group were higher in terms of anxiety, appetite loss, constipation, depression, dysphagia, dyspnea, edema, fatigue, mucositis, neuropathy. And so really we do see that there are kind of different toxicity profiles between the groups. And uh, there was also significantly lower rates of fatigue and neuropathy after surgery in patients who got full FOX as well as better sexual function. So this, these are considerations that are very real for the patients. And I think that each um, patient really needs to be well informed of their options and make a decision about what what works best for them in the long term. Uh, there was some title or something in the New York Times about how awful, terrible, disastrous Annoying, my goodness, the radio, we avoided radiotherapy and all of these things. Um, what happened there? What was the title? Because uh, you guys just went up in arms and then the title got retracted um, from the New York Times, which is probably unprecedented. And I don't know how much this was also done by Astro, the American Society of uh, Radiotherapy and all that stuff. Tell us what happened and, and how difficult was this to read this? I actually am... I'm forgetting what was the title of the New York Times article, but I recall there was so much about it online. Yeah, so um, so 
I think it was to the effect of calling radiotherapy brutal in this setting. And well, it is brutal. Well, chemotherapy was brutal too. Yeah, um, it is brutal. I mean, I'm just it's saying, brutal. That, I agree with you. Chemotherapy is brutal. Like, I'm yeah. not disagreeing. Yes. I think, I mean, cancer treatment is very difficult. It's yeah. not easy to go through. And the effects of the treatment are very difficult. This was highlighted in both the New England Journal article and the JCO article. And the effects are very significant for patients, regardless of the choice that the patient makes. But I think the use of using the word brutal um, is is kind of um, a little bit difficult to stomach as a radiation oncologist, because as you know, our, our one of our main goals is always to make the treatment as safe and tolerable as, as possible for the patient. And the reality is that none of our therapies are accomplished individually. Um, that you know, any treatment that we give to patients uh, to help cure them, there's a team approach to it. Most in most cases, there's usually a surgeon or a medical oncologist or a radiation oncologist or all involved. And the reality is that no success comes independently of one specialty or the other. And I think the thing that was probably maybe I could use the word hurtful about that, was that really we are a team. We're a multidisciplinary group who is here to help patients. And we work collaboratively day in and day out in our in our set in our hospital settings to to provide the best treatment we can. And to simply call um to use that word to use the word brutal to describe colleagues, treatments and the work that we all do to help patients, I think was very disappointing uh, to our specialty. And I, I don't know the full story of how the title was ultimately retracted, but I am thankful to yeah, the individuals. I was individuals. going to ask you, do you know how this was it like Astro or? I suspect um, that there must have been um, big organizations you know, or big uh, individuals involved. I'll, I'll in tell you, I mean, I think, I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, I think any cancer treatment, honestly, I mean, unless you're doing just topical creams and stuff like that, I mean, chemotherapy is brutal no matter what. And radiotherapy could be brutal. Both of them could be brutal. I think the way I took it, the reason I was not happy with the title was more along the lines that if patients read that circulation, and this is like in the public domain, it might detract some people from undergoing treatment that could be actually curative to them and very effective. I frankly, I mean, at least personally, this is completely, you know, on a personal note, I don't really care if somebody says chemotherapy is brutal because I actually do think it is. I think what I care about if, if that label might lead to somebody who declines chemotherapy just because of misinformation that, you know, okay, it's brutal, but let me tell you how can we make it less brutal. <laughs> let me tell you how can we actually mitigate the, the, problem, uh, the problem of these side effects. Because in anything that we do, there's like benefit-risk ratio. Nothing that we do is without problems. And as long as the benefit outweighs the risks, then I think we, we push for it. Uh, but yeah, I was very, very intrigued that you're able as a society to actually retract that uh, that thing. Um, the prospect trial was published in the NEJM. It came out at the plenary session several weeks ago. What has been your experience so far? Because you do also GI cancers. Was this practice changing day one? Uh, it's been a few weeks. How are you seeing the reception in the radiation oncology community 
to the trial and are folks ready to just switch practices right away? Or are they saying, well, it's good trial, it's great trial, I'm just not ready yet, I'm waiting for a few more things? So I think that our field, you know, as this trial, I think that our field um, has not immediately changed practice. I think um, that we sort of always knew chemotherapy alone in the preoperative setting for locally advanced rectal cancer is a reasonable option. And we knew this from other studies uh, that had been previously published. And especially in the setting of uh, childbearing uh, women of young age who uh, want to preserve fertility, certainly a preoperative chemotherapy approach is a great option for them, particularly if they fit the criteria of the prospect study. Uh, so I don't feel that there's anything immediate that has changed, uh, partially because Right now, we've moved onto the bandwagon of total neoadjuvant therapy for many of our rectal cancer patients. And as you know, this is uh, the incorporation of both chemo and chemoradiation preoperatively with the hopes to maximally shrink the tumor, downstage it, and the, and the, the major hope at that point would be uh, that patients can avoid surgery or undergo a non-operative management approach. And so I think with this kind of trend to intensify therapy and maximally downstage tumors. Um, there's been a little bit of a less less of a focus on um, on this this particular paradigm and um, and and I think that in the immediate um, time it has not changed what we do. Uh, but I do think it can well inform our patients who want a an or uh, fertility sparing approach or maybe more nervous about uh, certain effects of radiation. I do yeah. want to add something though about the radiation therapy in this study, which is that um, it was a bit unclear to me what kind of technique was actually employed yeah, most true. often. Mm -hmm. And um, I agree uh, about the new about the uh, New York Times rather. Uh, and um, how important it is to not misinform patients about radiation therapy. Uh, but I think one thing to keep in mind is that um, the radiation therapy itself has evolved over the last decade to be more uh, more focused, and can, we can really spare toxicity very well, particularly with the main toxicity of having been diarrhea. We have many studies in the IMRT area era that show we actually can reduce diarrhea significantly by the use of intensely modulated radiation therapy, which is uh, more focused or sort of more precise radiation that's intended to protect nearby organs a bit better than the more traditional three-dimensional approaches. And um, with that, I also wonder whether or not many of these toxicities could have been further improved in the prospect trial if IMRT was consistently employed. We just don't know the rates of the use of IMRT versus 3D conformal radiation in this study. And another potential benefit would have been for uh, blood counts such as lymphopenia. Uh, and this we know is also measurably improved with better radiation therapy and avoidance of the bone marrow in the pelvis, which accounts for about 40% of the bone marrow. So we really can do a much better job with the modern therapy, which I think was a little bit not highlighted in the New England Journal paper. And I, I think that that's actually a, a really important point for our patients to understand is that our technology has really changed in the past decade. 
and um, we have data to kind of support this reduction in toxicity with IMRT. And furthermore, in the um, publication for the in, in the protocol for the prospect trial, there were uh, no constraints on the bone marrow uh, doses. So that kind of tells us that um, there wasn't really um, there wasn't really an effort made to reduce. Um, reduce that particular toxicity. Yeah, su such an important point. Actually, Selma, it underscores um, the complexity of clinical trials. I mean, this trial was started in 2012. It's reporting 11 years later. And you always wonder, I mean, it's obviously kudos to the authors, investigators, and patients who actually persevered through the trial. But at the end of the day, by the time the trial comes out, you always wonder, well, am I using the same radiotherapy technique? Things have changed. And it just tells you how tough it is really to do these long-term prospective clinical trials. So um, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your uh, perspective. I think your radiation oncology colleagues will continue to talk to you after this podcast, which is really important. I don't think we pissed off anybody. This is a very friendly podcast. But uh, any last uh, thoughts uh, you'd like to share before I let you go? No, I think that um, it's really just important that we keep advancing care for our patients with these trials, um, no matter how long they do take to actually show results, um, they do impact our decision making. And the prospect trial, uh, despite some of its controversies, does offer a really important uh, set of outcomes for patients and a set of options that uh, solidifies the use of preoperative chemotherapy alone in a select group of patients. And also, I do think that it's important to recognize how often we are curing patients with this disease and the progress that's been made on that front. Um, the impressive overall survival rates uh, really do give us hope that the patients are reaping the benefits of these trials and the more modern therapies. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And what's your favorite book? My favorite book is Toxic Exposure by Shadi Nabhan. Good job. Dr. Salma Jabour on Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and nice to talk with you today. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Dr. Jabour for being on today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I hope you caught up with some of the ASCO presentations. This was really very interesting, very important. And again, it just shows how long it takes to conduct and execute these long-term clinical trials. This was 11 years in the making until we found these results. And obviously the field may have moved from this question and look at other questions, but it is the nature of the beast when it comes to conducting clinical trials and how long these take. Special thanks to everybody in the radiation oncology field for always helping in minimizing side effects, maximizing benefits to all of our patients. I want to make sure that you get an opportunity to subscribe to the show, rate it, and let your friends and colleagues know about it. You can watch all of these episodes on my website or on YouTube, my YouTube channel. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Helen Keller. Optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. Until next time, take care.